So let's do a, a quick poll before we dive into the deep end here. Who likes cannolis? So every hand should be up. Now, who prefers Mike's over modern? Big debate in Boston. Oh, who prefers modern over Mike's? Who's undecided? All right. Who prefers hamburgers over pizza when it comes to junk food? Ooh, that's hard in Boston because we have really good pizza. All right, pizza over hamburgers. Split decision. All right. Who prefers the Red Sox over the Yankees? You're showing partiality, you bunch of sinners. <laughs> no, so let's, let's dive in this morning around this topic of partiality. So let's set the, the background for our sermon this morning. James is writing predominantly to Jewish Christians who are part of house churches in Palestine. Now, these Christians, it seems through reading the text, are living in poverty and they're living under some persecution. James is writing to address the struggles and the trials that they're dealing with. Now, Pastor Stephen covered the, the overall context of James really well in the first sermon in the series. He mentioned that these were members of the Jewish diaspora, the 12 tribes of Israel scattered around the Mediterranean. So these are scattered house churches. And now let's consider the immediate context of our passage this morning. So think back last week, Pastor Aaron from City on a Hill, Brighton was here, and he preached chapter 1, 19 through 25. And the big gist of that passage was, do not just hear the word, but be doers of the word also. So he says that it's not just enough to, to show up and listen, right? That if you don't walk away from Jesus changed, if you don't walk away from Jesus recognizing his rightful role as king over your life, showing up and listening is just not enough. Our faith has to be accompanied by action. That's a major theme throughout the book of James. So another way to say this is our orthodoxy must work its way out in orthopraxy. Now, what that means is what we believe about who God is, about who Jesus is, about Scripture, about the church, our right beliefs about the doctrines of our faith, that's orthodoxy, has to work its way out in the way that we live our everyday lives. That's orthopraxy, right living. And if it doesn't do that, there's a disconnect somewhere, right? So how does James begin this portion of his letter to address this issue that he sees in these Christians, that their orthodoxy is not fleshing its way out into orthopraxy, the way that they're living? So in verse 1, he starts with a direct command. He says, immediately, do not show favoritism. Do not show partiality. And he connects this directly with their faith. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So let's define partiality, right? We sort of talked about it a little bit in jest at the beginning, but here's the definition of partiality. Unfair bias in favor of one thing or person compared with another or favoritism. So James says, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, He's asserting that to show partiality in this way that he's about to lay out in this hypothetical story that we've already heard this morning is antithetical to following Jesus. In other words, you can't do both. There's, there's a disconnect again. That's what he's driving at here. Showing partiality is antithetical to following Jesus. 
So if you look back just one verse at chapter 127, he says this to these Christians who seem to think that uh, they have a lot of self-righteousness. They seem to think a lot of their their self-righteousness. He says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, Pastor Stephen's going to dive deeper into that text next week, but that's the verse that comes right before this. So the point that James is making is you can't just look like a Christian and be all set. You can't just talk the talk or show up to all the right events, right? Coming to to worship on Sunday mornings and showing up to community group. You can't just ask the Lord to make the double Big Mac and large fry that you eat for lunch, nourish your body, and then expect not to gain five pounds when you eat it, right? That's not the way life works. James is saying you have to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. So if you want to follow Jesus, which is the call of James here, to follow Jesus rightly, we have to ask a few questions. Where did Jesus go? Jesus was called the friend of sinners, right? So where did Jesus go? Where is he asking us to follow him? A couple of examples from the Gospels. Luke 7, 34 says this, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This was the reputation that Jesus was garnering for himself as he went about doing his ministry. What does that tell you about the kinds of people that he was willing to be seen with, to associate with, to spend time, to invest time with? Skip a little further. Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well, and he breaks three social norms in one conversation, right? In this culture, He's a Jew who's speaking to a Samaritan who the Jews considered to be less than as a people or inferior, right? He was a man speaking to a woman who in this culture were heavily discriminated against. And then one step beyond that, he allowed himself, a Jewish man, to be seen speaking to a Samaritan woman who everybody knew had been unfaithful in marriage. This is scandalous, right? If Twitter existed in Jesus' time, there would be a hashtag five minutes after this happened and pictures all over the internet. What we see is Jesus is willing to risk his reputation to go after those who he knows need what he has to offer, which is what he tells her in the story is living water, satisfying water, right? So what is this way of Jesus that we're called to walk in as we follow him to these places and these people. What does it mean to follow him? Let's look at Mark 10, 45. So we're going to get at how Jesus goes about going to these people, right? So we've addressed where Jesus calls us to go, but in what manner does he call us to go? Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, it would be difficult, consider his time with the woman at the well, right? It would be very difficult to serve someone and to give your life for theirs while thinking about how below you they are or that they seem to be, right? This is not the way that Jesus served. Jesus left heaven being served at his throne by the angels in glory to come and to kneel and to be. Scripture calls him a servant, to serve, right? This is the way 
that Jesus went to these people who the culture would consider outcast, not worthy of his time or ours for that fact. Jesus didn't go to them considering them lower than himself. He came to serve these very people. This is what Jesus calls us to do. So partiality is antithetical to following Jesus. Let's keep going. James 2 through 4. So this is the hypothetical. This is the story that Jesus lays out to try to help these believers understand what he's getting at. He's going to show them their partiality, right? So for a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, how many of us throw fancy dinner parties where people are expected to have ball gowns and, and tuxes, right? Anybody? We do it in my house all the time. So, uh, No, we don't maybe do that so often anymore, but in this culture, uh, throwing these sorts of dinner parties was normal, and the person who would walk in, who it was obvious based on their outward appearance, the clothes they're wearing, James references a gold ring, is someone of high status, someone who's important, right? It was common for them to take the seat of honor, usually at the head of the table closest to the host. So that's what's going on here. And the contrast is somebody who comes in maybe in shabby clothing, who, again, it's obvious based on their outward appearance that they are not someone of high stature or as important as this other man, and they basically disregard him. They say, no, no, you go over here, go where we can't all see you, right? That's, that's the distinction here. Now, no matter your socioeconomical status today or whether or not you throw these fancy dinner parties, we can relate to these Christians to whom James is writing. We have this propensity in our culture to always look beyond our current circumstances, to assume that the grass is always greener on the other side, right? We all do this. We always want more of whatever we think is going to satisfy us. In an article on the American Psychological Association website, this is really interesting, um, Tori D'Angeles writes, compared to Americans in 1957, today we own twice as many cars per person, eat out twice as often, and enjoy endless other commodities that weren't around then. Big screen TVs, right? Who's watched the finals on a big screen TV recently? Go Celtics, yeah. Microwave ovens, my kids eat mac and cheese out of those all the time. SUVs, handheld wireless devices. Everybody has a phone, right? Whether you're a blue or a green person, we all have phones. Uh, just to name a few, but are we happier? Certainly happiness is difficult to pin down, let alone measure, but a recent literature review suggests that we are no more content than we were then. In fact, maybe less so. Compared with their grandparents, today's young adults have grown up with much more affluence, slightly less happiness, and much greater risk of depression and assorted social pathology. Our becoming much better off over the last four decades has not been accompanied by one iota of increased subjective well-being. Now, this is the culture that we all find ourselves immersed in today, right? The culture that says, I need more and more and more of whatever it is I'm chasing after because it's never quite enough, right? Does that resonate with everybody? Because it does with me. It's exhausting. 
But the culture that we find ourselves in is not that different in some ways than the culture of James's audience. What drives this showing of partiality in these readers in James? What drives partiality in the church today, in our church even? Dissatisfaction, discontent rooted in the belief, number one, that we don't need Jesus to satisfy us, and number two, that we don't need Jesus to justify us. This causes discontentment, and we struggle with this just like these believers did, and it causes us to do the exact same things that they did to show partiality. Now, what does this look like in our context? We've already established, right, we don't all throw fancy dinner parties, but it certainly takes on forms that we can recognize in our context today. Adriel Sanchez, pastor of North Park Presbyterian Church in San Diego, California, says this, Partiality, unfortunately, can sneak into our words and actions in both bold and subtle ways. It often forms the choices we make, particularly who we talk to and prefer to hang out with, or more obviously, in demanding people who are different from you conform to your ethnic customs, traditions, and other non-biblical aspects of Christian life. It can manifest more overtly in pursuing with the gospel people of a certain race while excluding other races from evangelistic efforts. Recent events in America have cast a light on the racism of many people who claim to hold the Christian faith. This is the sin of partiality at work. Even among mono-ethnic churches, racism, cliques, and bias based on a number of factors can go unchecked, influencing the life of the assembly. We're all familiar with this, right? It got a primetime hearing in the January 6th hearing on a broadcast on national TV just this past Thursday, where the Proud Boys, a group of white supremacists, stormed the Capitol. It is easy to see partiality at work in our country today, and unfortunately, in the church. But now let's look at the contrast. That's heavy, right? But James doesn't leave us there. Let's look at the contrast, what James is saying our orthopraxy should look like. So verse 5, James says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So this introduces the idea of an upside-down kingdom, which I forgot to reference this at the beginning, but that's what I've titled this sermon, is the upside-down kingdom. So this is James continuing the theme that we see all throughout Scripture, that uh, in particular in the Gospels, that the kingdom of God does not operate or evaluate things the same way that our culture or we do. So take these two examples from Matthew's gospel, Matthew 18, one through four. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And after calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, these are the same children that other places in the, in the gospel, the disciples tried to shoo away from Jesus, right? Treating them as if they were not worthy of Jesus' time. This was the general disposition towards children in this culture. They were to be seen and not heard and oftentimes not even seen, right? 
But this, Jesus tells them, is the goal. Jesus tells the disciples they need to humble themselves to the level of a child, turns their expectations of what they should be like on their head, right? So jump to chapter 19. We see the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I've kept the law. Is there anything else that I need to do? He thought that he could justify himself. He had all the wealth he could want, stuff to satisfy him. What does Jesus tell him? He says, go and sell everything you have and come and follow me. And what happens? Scripture says he walks away sad because Jesus told him that the only thing he needed was the one thing he didn't have. And that was a sense of his own neediness. Neediness, which is seen to us as a disadvantage, right? Nobody wants to be considered needy, right? I certainly don't. That's a struggle that I have. Jesus says that's the only thing that he needed, and it's the one thing he didn't have. Now, right after this story, Jesus turns to the disciples, and he blows their mind again. He says this, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we, Jesus, your disciples here, have left everything to follow you. What then will we have? And Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, now we need to tune in there, that's kingdom language that Jesus is using. He's directly referencing this upside down kingdom, right? In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, verse 29 sounds crazy, right? We spend our entire lives building comfort and a life for ourselves. We surround ourselves with family. We buy houses, so we pursue land. But Jesus says, no, those who have left those things, who have counted the cost of following me and considered me more valuable, who have left those things, you will inherit eternal life and receive a hundredfold what you left behind. Turns their expectations on their heads, and ours too, for that matter. This directly speaks to our culture and our values. Both of these stories show us that Jesus's value system and the value system of this new kingdom, this upside-down kingdom, is nothing like the value system of the culture we find ourselves in today. We live in a culture that values success, status, money, title, right? You want that new job promotion, comfort at pretty much any cost, education, right? Tons and tons of colleges. Education is a huge deal in Boston. But to quote Aaron Burr from Hamilton, why do you assume you're the smartest in the room? Maybe a problem that Boston has, right? These are our, our, our cultural idols that we hold up and we spend our lives chasing after. Now, this shows up in the Old Testament too. This is not just a New Testament problem. Consider the choosing of David, as king of Israel, God tells Samuel, the prophet in the Old Testament, to go to Jesse and to ask to see his sons to choose Israel's next king. 
Jesus, Jesse brings out his oldest two sons, because that's what you would do, right? Based on their physical appearance, they are the obvious choices to be made king. But then the Lord says this to Samuel. But the Lord said this to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Sorry, Stephen, I know you're tall. but uh, Do not look on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then next, Jesse brings out David, a young shepherd boy. Again, shepherds, people who were not considered a high class in this society, they often smelled like the sheep they were tending, right? But David brings out his youngest son, a small shepherd boy, and this is who the Lord chooses to anoint as the next king of Israel. So we can look the most pointed way in the Old Testament that Jesus turned the value system of these Christians and our value system completely upside down. 1 Corinthians 1.27, Paul writes this, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The prophet Isaiah writes of Jesus and his saving work on the cross. In Isaiah 52, as many were astonished at you, he's speaking about Jesus here, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That's interesting to consider, right? The, the problem that the Israelites experienced here, they were looking for a ruler to come in, a military-style ruler to come in to overthrow Rome. He would come riding in with an army, right? Clad in his his uniform and his gold, the things that would denote a king. But this is how Jesus comes to save his people, a bleeding, suffering servant on a cross, completely turns their expectations upside down. So let's keep going. Verses six through seven. So here's the accusation. James is about to lay it down, right? He says, but you have dishonored the poor man, going back to our story. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James is calling out the hypocrisy of these believers. James says the very folks who you're trying to get in good with, right, to show favor with, they're the ones who are oppressing you. They're the ones who are dragging you into court and suing you for everything you have. Why in the world would you want to be like them? They show by their very actions that they are not worthy of emulation. They are not worthy of following But this is what partiality and our sinful hearts does to us, right? It twists what we think we should be chasing after. We chase after and we want to become like these people who oppress. This is what showing partiality looks like. It's keeping up with the Joneses, right? That's the modern phrase. Valuing your reputation over your ability to serve and help others. Valuing your comfort so much that you can't find time to get to know your neighbor, literally seeing them as unworthy of your time. 
That steps on my toes. I don't know about you. Maybe it's avoiding the person you consider underdressed on a Sunday morning, having no patience with that person who maybe can't seem to show up on time to events the same way that you can. This is maybe how this shows itself in our own context, right? It steps on our toes a little bit. But just in case you think you don't struggle with these things and that you're doing all right here, James has more for us. Buckle up. Verses 8 through 10, James says, if you really fulfill the royal law, which these Christians thought they did a pretty good job of, right? They said, we've got this down pat. If you fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. You're doing good. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. So these Christians thought a lot of their ability to keep this law, again, thinking that they could justify themselves, right? What they failed to see is that to be justified before the law, you have to keep the whole thing, never failing, not even one time. You must be perfect. So it's kind of like, uh, has anybody seen the show American Ninja Warrior? Show of hands? Yeah, I love that show. If you haven't watched it, it's completely ridiculous, but it's fun. These people sprint through this, this uh, ridiculous obstacle course that's all set over a pool of water. And a lot of them do make it all the way and they get to smash the big red button and the fireworks go off. I couldn't do that if my life depended on it. Uh, but inevitably, somebody comes along uh, and they try to make a jump that their body is just not designed to make, right? And they land gut first where their feet should have been and they fall in the water. Um, and it's kind of like that. You don't get to get back up, right? You don't get to keep going. Once you fall, you're out, you're done. James says that to break one of God's laws is to break the entire law. You're done. So the law really is the great equalizer. It levels the playing field and helps us see that nobody is actually better than anybody else. So just in case you think you're doing well in this area of partiality, James says, hold on. Remember that you fall short in all of these other areas that you have pushed to the back of your mind in sinful pride and complete self-deception, right? We don't like to face where we fall short, but we all do. Scripture reveals the truth about the human race when it says no one is perfect. Actually, I think it says no one is good, not even perfect. No one is good. No, not one. You might be thinking, right? Gosh, this is, this is harsh, Seems a bit extreme, right? The idea that if you break one law, you're just as guilty if you broke every law. This is because we have a warped sense of holiness. We think about this statement in the context of our earthly laws that are given by and written by broken and sinful people just like us. But the law of God was given by the perfect law giver. It's about who issues the law. And this raises the bar. So let's keep on going. Verse, verse 11 for he who said, let me read that again. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So if you break even one law, you're completely guilty because the one who gave the law is perfect and the standard is complete perfection. God's holiness is the standard. Jackie Hill Perry, in her book, Holier Than Thou, How God's Holiness Helps Us Trust Him, says this about holiness, helps us understand a little bit more. Holiness and goodness 
should never be determined by the whims, wishes, and standards of a created thing or even a whole culture, especially when that culture's ideas are so easily influenced by the deceitful hearts within it, as well as its overall mutability taking different shapes in conformity to its era. God defines God, and holiness is not an aspect of God. Holy is who he is through and through. But this leaves us in a bit of a tough spot, right? Who can live up to this standard? We've already established that no one is good. Scripture tells us that. So nobody can keep the law perfectly, much less the whole law, right? So where's the hope? Thankfully, again, James doesn't leave us here. Let's press on. Verse 12, the law of liberty is referenced. This is our hope. He says, so speak and act. He gives another directive here. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The theologian R.C. Sproul helps us define this idea of the law of liberty. It's not a thing we say often, right? So let's, let's get some help here. He says, this law of liberty is the royal law or the law of God as fulfilled by Christ. So the law of God as fulfilled by Christ. What does this mean? Here's the good news this morning. It means that Jesus is the one who has fulfilled the requirements of the law on your behalf and on my behalf. He has done what you and I are completely incapable of doing, living up to the perfect standard of God, the lawgiver. On the cross, Jesus took on our guilt and took our punishment, giving us his clean record of righteousness in exchange. By his mercy, we are liberated from that wheel that we spin on trying to chase our cultural idols, right? We are liberated from that because it's exhausting. This is the hope that we can cling to this morning. But remember, our orthodoxy, right? Our right beliefs in this good news has to work its way out in the way we live. If we're really placing true faith in the gospel, we must walk in orthopraxy, right living. So the rest of Sproul's quote uh, gets at the instruction of James here. He says, God's law remains our guide to holy living, and we must continue to obey all of its moral precepts, lest we be revealed as lacking authentic faith. When James speaks of the law of liberty, he is speaking of the whole law of God as interpreted by Jesus, because the ceremonial law has been fulfilled by Christ. That's the standard, right? We are no longer bound to keep its ceremonies and rituals. However, the law's sum and essence, loving God with all our hearts and loving our neighbors as ourselves, showing no partiality, still binds us today. Sproul encourages us to go to the Lord and ask him to enable us to live faithfully in obedience to his law in Christ. So we pursue holiness. That's James' main point here, right? We're going back to this idea of you can't just walk the walk, you have to talk the talk too. We pursue holiness and we do not show partiality and serve our neighbor. We don't do it out of a sense of duty or in hopes to keep the law but because we've been set free to do so by the mercy of Jesus who liberated us so that we can help others find the same liberation from sin and its consequences. So what does this mean for us this morning sitting in this room? The call for us is to follow Jesus, 
not expecting to be served, but instead to serve and remembering that we have been liberated to do so. We've been set free from the exhaustion of running after the things that never truly satisfy us so that we can pursue Jesus, the only one who truly satisfies our souls. This is my my prayer for our church this morning from Philippians 2, 3 through 8. This is is how we're, we're taking it home this morning. In Philippians, Paul writes, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count yourselves more significant than others. Again, this is my prayer for us. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So I want to pause here. Our vision, every person, every culture experiencing the gospel, right? You want to know what turns a community upside down, what causes a lost and dying world who you get to interact with and I get to interact with every day to stop in their tracks and go, wow, what do they have that's so different? This is what causes people to do that. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This morning, if you have not made the choice to follow Jesus, maybe this is all new to you. The ask of you is to consider the ways which you try to justify yourself, right? Or the ways that you try to satisfy yourself with what the world has to offer, because it never works, right? We're always left wanting more. If you really trust yourself and your ability to meet that perfect standard, Jesus offers you liberation from that exhaustion of self-justification and seeking after satisfaction. If you are following Jesus this morning, We invite you to come in just a moment reflecting on the mercy that you have been given in Christ to take communion, to consider the ways that Jesus is asking you to follow him, to consider the ways maybe you've been convicted by the Holy Spirit this morning of showing partiality in your own life. That's the call for us this morning. It's it's actually the same for both groups of people. It's to follow Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Let's pray.